Well, good morning, church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 35 this morning. The scripture that was just read, Isaiah 35. If you didn't bring a Bible, we do have some paperback Bibles near you, and we'd love it if you would follow along with us as we consider this scripture this morning. So much of this passage is a passage about a journey. And even as I saw the three candles being lit this morning, I see us making our way further along our Advent journey here in December. And it's sweet to be walking this with you. Our journey through the calendar year is often a reminder that we're on a journey through life. We've made it almost all the way through another year. 2018 is almost over. We will, Lord willing, enter into another year and time will move on in this journey. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we realize that by faith, we are also on a journey home. It's not just a cycle of year after year. It's not just a cycle that began at our birth and will end at our death. It is a journey that begins at new birth. It's a new a journey that begins by seeing, beholding Christ and being transformed renewed and justified and being remade in the image of Christ during the course of this life with a promise that that cycle of year after year will be broken when we're brought to into his presence and we will be home, a journey home, a journey home to be with our God in a land that he has prepared for all of his redeemed, not just any one of us alone, but a people together redeemed by His grace, through faith. Now, Advent, this season that we're in, this series that we are in, waiting for our King, we're calling it Advent, is, if you look at it in the calendar year, it comes at the end of our calendar year, here in December. But for the church calendar, and I just found this out actually this year, it's actually the beginning of the church calendar year. It's the launch of a story that's told in the church calendar calendar uh, throughout the whole of the year. For the church, Advent is a reminder that light has come, that there is a new beginning that comes with the Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of our calendar because we are reminded that light has come, darkness is scattered, and we have begun a new pilgrimage. Yes, the the year moves on and on, January through December, but there is a new pilgrimage that we have entered into, and it's a pilgrimage home. And we're reminded that our pilgrimage home begins not with something that we have done, not even necessarily something that has happened within us, but that the Savior has actually come to us. That's how our pilgrimage home begins, by heaven coming and dwelling among us. He is the light. He scatters darkness and enters into a journey with us, that, a journey that he has purchased. He has secured its, the journey's end and will bring it to its completion. Our pilgrimage home has an anthem. We're often told, especially in the Psalms, that there is a, a new song for the people of God. We have a song to sing, an anthem that is sung by all who make the journey. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 65. Keep your finger in Isaiah 35. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. 
If you turn with me to Psalm 65, you're going to find our song. We've already heard Isaiah 35 read for us. Isaiah 35 is a description of the promises of the Lord, the promises that the Lord makes for the course of our journey. And Psalm 65 is the Redeemer's response of hope and celebration to the promises of the Lord in Isaiah 35. It's a song that the pilgrim sings in expectation of the Lord's salvation. Isaiah 35 is the prophet's description of the promises of the Lord to bring his redeemed people through a wilderness to their promised home. Isaiah calls forth images of the exodus and, and provision of the Lord for their wilderness wandering. But in Psalm 65, we find the song that rises up in the hearts of the pilgrim. Let's read it together. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. The pilgrim, that's what rises up in him. Praise is due to the one who has come to be among us and to carry us through a difficult journey. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. I love that. I love that. When iniquities prevail against me, that sounds like, man, some people are really doing some bad stuff to me. And you're going to come and really get them, aren't you, God? That's not what it says. You atone for our transgressions. What are the iniquities that prevail against us? Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. What is the satisfaction of the pilgrim? That the journey feels nice, that it's so sweet. No, the satisfaction of the pilgrim is found in the goodness of the house to which he goes, from which the Savior has come and to which he brings the pilgrim. Verse 5, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. We talked a lot about that last week. The hope of all the ends of the earth and the, of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell in at the ends of the earth, are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You see that the Lord has a never-ending abundance of provision for the people of God on their wilderness journey. Your water, its furrow, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. What an incredible image, right? What, what is the clothing of the meadows? Well, it's the sheep. It's the wool. They're clothed. 
The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Psalm 65 begins with the psalmist exalting in hope, right? He exalts in hope of the coming home. His satisfaction is with the goodness of His house, the holiness of His temple. It begins with a blessing for those who the Lord chooses to bring to His dwelling, to dwell in His courts. And then the psalmist is reminded of the power of the Lord that extends to the ends of the earth. Because you can promise all day and all night that you'll do something good for a people, but that if you don't have the might and strength to accomplish it, your promise is nothing. But the might of the Lord extends to the ends of the earth. And that's good news for a pilgrim on a journey home. And it closes with an image that's echoed in Isaiah. It's actually what drew my attention to this passage. The Lord is causing the ground and the wilderness places to become fruitful places to provide for the redeemed people. This is an image that's going to be prevalent in our passage this morning, that we are on a wilderness journey. Like the Exodus people who were called out from slavery, but did not immediately enter the land of promise. They had a journey through the wilderness in which they exercised dependence upon the Lord. It was necessary that the Lord would provide for them in those desert places. Nature itself were promised, formerly under curse, Right? Nature's un- under curse. There's thorns and there's wild beasts that prevent the nourishment of the people in the wilderness places. That nature that was formerly under curse is becoming glad to provide for the people of the Lord. You see, nature itself has a voice in both Psalm 30, Psalm 65 as well as Isaiah 35 this morning. It, it Nature itself begins to rise with a song of joy and gladness to provide for the people of God. What I want you to see this morning is how the pilgrim on his journey is always aware of this fact, that the Lord is the one who works and provides and saves and upon whose promise the pilgrim is utterly dependent to bring him home. I want us to sit there in that this morning. That there, This passage is filled, as we turn back to Isaiah 35, this passage is filled with good news. Really sweet promises. And yet the, the sum total of Isaiah 35 is really this. The Lord can promise lots of things. Lots of things can be said in this passage But at the end of the day, no matter what it says, we are utterly dependent upon Him to accomplish it. We are on a journey home. Only He knows where it is. And only He has the glory and majesty to bring us there. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would dwell with us this morning. You promised You've called this gathering. You've promised to be with your people. You've given us your word. And you have promised that your word would be effective in all who would hear it with faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would go with us. The one who has come 
who has dwelt among us, who has performed the gospel for us, would carry us home. Lord, I pray that you would use Isaiah, that you would use your prophet, inspired by your spirit, to work effectively among the people of God for encouragement. The purpose of this prophecy, that you would encourage your people on this journey that will surely bring us home. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, in the name of our Savior. Amen. This morning's passage, Isaiah 35, is really four sections. They're rather distinct, actually. If you look at them, you could probably find the outline pretty quickly. In probably most of your Bibles, there's even little uh, spaces in between the paragraphs. They're, They're really quite distinct. The first little section of Isaiah 35 is verses 1 and 2. Look at it with me again. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. You hear it? The wilderness and the dry land are being personified as the Lord works in their midst to provide for the people of God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon, even the glory of this, this foreign land with all of its forestry and woodland and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. It shall be given to the land that the people journey in. And then you have this, and really I think it's the defining moment of the first two verses. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. That's the purpose for which God has all of these provisions for the people of God as they make this journey in the wilderness. So Isaiah 35 verses 1 and 2. I think it could be characterized in this way, that they are the Lord's promise of provision for the wilderness journey. Now, I have a question in my mind. What is the nature of the promise? As I'm, as I'm looking at this passage, what is the nature of the promise of the Lord for the wilderness journey? So, there's a few things that we can see. We can see that the wilderness... This harsh and parched land, we'll see in just a little bit, it's filled with wild beasts... And, and this is where the Lord has sent the redeemed people. You, the, the people asked that very question when they were brought out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They asked the question, what are we doing over here? Weren't we better off back in Egypt? Why don't we just go back to Pharaoh under his slavery where things were great? Right? What's the Lord doing redeeming the people into this Wilderness, harsh, parched, and filled with beasts. Is that really the vision of the Lord for His people? Friends, I'm looking at you and I know you. (laughs) I know you've asked that question. God, I'm your redeemed. Your word says that I have been saved by grace through faith. But it doesn't feel like it right now. Is this what salvation looks like? I'm, I'm destitute right now. I'm in the wilderness and it feels awfully parched out here and it looks like wild beasts are encroaching. Is this really what the Lord has redeemed us to? Is this your vision for your people? See the barren wasteland, the wilderness, the desert. And then the Lord, by His gracious provision, moment by moment, restores glory and majesty that was previously only seen in the garden. The curse is being reversed during the course of the wilderness journey. 
It's the joy of the Lord transforming the pilgrim's way. Nature itself begins to, the joy and singing. I'll be honest, as I, as I look at that, I'm like, I'm not sure exactly what that means. And my guess is because it's not done. That there is a work that's only going to be complete when the Lord finally returns to completely rescue his people into his kingdom, that we're going to see that curse fully reversed. And yet, there is provision of the Lord for the journey at the right moment, where right there in the middle of the wilderness, there's a spring. Right there in the middle of the desert, there is a forest shade tree for the soul of the one who is parched. The Israelites found in their wilderness journey that there was manna and quail that seemed to appear simply for the joy of the Lord to provide for His people. It was absolute miracle that the Lord would provide for the people in their wilderness journey. And it's through nature itself. It's as though it's bursting forth with joy at hosting the people of God. That's the transformative work of God during the course of the journey of the people of God to their eternal rest. I tell you, as I read this, I'm like, I, I long for that reversal, right? Uh, if there's one thing that I've gotten from this passage thus far in my study of it, and I tell you, I'm not done with Isaiah 35. I have a lot more time to spend here. The one thing, and I shared this also last week, it's just a, it just seems to be a theme in Isaiah. I long for this to be true. God is birthing a, in me a desire for Isaiah 35 to be true. Lord God, transform the, the realities of this wilderness journey so that my joy is nothing less than the second half of verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of their God. A couple weeks ago, I read uh, this quote from Robert Weber. He said this. This was when we were in Isaiah chapter 6, and he beholds the glory of God that fills the temple, right? Unfortunately, we fail to see what Isaiah saw. We allow the goals, the ambitions, the everyday responsibilities of life to be so central to our thoughts that we fail to shut down and center on the Holy One, the Creator, the One who is high and lifted up of, of all that is. Now that quote again, it refers to Isaiah 6, the vision of the throne. But we could also say that we fail to see what Isaiah sees here in chapter 35. We allow fear. Maybe it's not goals, ambitions, and everyday responsibilities, but rather we allow fear, we allow anxiety, we allow comfort to be so central to our thoughts that we fail to see the, in the wilderness the vision of the Lord providing for His people moment by moment and day by day. Just like the people who complained that they had to eat manna again. Friends, you are in the wilderness and in a desert and you're eating bread. You see? Concerned by fear, anxiety, and discomfort that distracts us from seeing the Lord has miraculously and graciously provided for His people. More than that, He's promised to go with them. 
The Lord has promised a a blossoming where there's only barrenness. The Lord has promised glory and majesty in the middle of the journey. Now, this can be a bit confusing, and I want to head this off for just a moment. Has the Lord really promised to make you comfortable on the wilderness journey? Is that what Isaiah 35 is all about? So I'm just going to go home and say, God, I'm going to wait for you to make this all better. Can we really ask the Lord for whatever we want and get whatever we ask? Again, look at the end of verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of their God. And what we discover is what the Lord seems to think is the true hope and the great provision for the pilgrim on their journey is that they would see the Lord Himself. That is the great provision. The glory that is promised is a vision of the Lord Himself. So what we do is we, we live by faith. And then we have the great privilege of seeing the Lord provide. And every time we say, oh Lord, look, you have, you have shown yourself again in your provision. Our hope is not that we would see only the hand that bears the gift, but we would look up the hand and we would look up the arm and we would see his face. And where his face is, we know his hand will be at work to provide for his people in the journey. We know that they're, they're never separated. The face of God will also be the provision of God in that moment of need. Now, it doesn't mean that we get what we want when we want it. In fact, when we're in want, when scarcity seems to prevail, it should really only condition our heart to cry out to the Lord for salvation, that we would see Him, and that we would see His Provision. And what we would say is this, what really, if you look at the Old Testament stories of provision and promise to the, to the people of Israel and particularly to their kings over and over again, the theme is, will you look to me as your hope, your provision and your salvation? Will you look to me? What we'll see throughout this chapter is the way that the Lord provides for the pilgrim. But as we'll see in the next section, the purpose of the provision is not complete comfort and rest. If this were so, what we would become is lazy for the journey, right? We might begin to think that the wilderness itself is our home. I really kind of like it out here in the desert. Maybe we won't go home After all, we become content with the Lord's provision rather than with the glory and majesty of the Lord Himself and the glories of His home that He has yet promised to His people. So the purpose of the Lord's provision is to strengthen us to carry on. Yes, we need food. Yes, we need shelter. But our heart's true satisfaction is to see the Lord and to dwell in His presence forever. And so He provides what is needed for us to get there. We are so fickle. I'm reminded of that hymn, Give Me Jesus. It comes to my mind very often, and I I struggle with it because it's my heart's faith, and it's my experiences wavering. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, when I'm alone, oh, when I am alone, And when I come to die, give me Jesus. I pause and I wonder, is this true? You can have all the rest, the hymn says. 
can have all the rest. Give me Jesus. And I wonder, is my orientation when I, when, when I pray for other things, when I, when I look to him for his provision, when I look at the word and I, and I say, God, would you cause there to blossom like the crocus in this desert place? Because I am parched in the sun. When I pray that, do I, am I saying, Lord, give me that so I can survive yet a moment to be brought to see you? Is my goal, ultimately, that you can have all the rest if I can only see Jesus? Isaiah 35, it's, it's about the pilgrim's journey, and Hebrews picks up the same theme according to the work of the Lord along the pilgrim's journey, whether it's through discipline or abundant provision, the purpose is the same. The purpose is Hebrews 12, 12. I would encourage you, write that down next to verse 3. Hebrews 12, 12. It picks up that same thing. It's almost a quote. Hebrews 12, 12 says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Do you see? The purpose of of this provision of the Lord and and a call to, to look to His glory, the purpose is encouragement and strengthening. Hands, hands are strengthened to labor. Knees, Knees are strengthened to stand up straight and continue on. Hearts are strengthened to endure in faith. And there's something that's quite interesting in verse 4. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. And then verse 4 gives a command. It's a command. Don't miss it. Don't think that just because you have the Ten Commandments, you found all the commands of the Scriptures, right? This is a command. It says, say to those who have an anxious heart. The command is this. Say to them, and then he gives you words to say. What do I say to encourage my brother? What do I say to encourage my sister? Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Oh, that's good news for a pilgrim who's exhausted on the journey. It's not, come on, pick yourself up, we're going home. It's much better the news than that. The Savior's coming. He's going to pick you up, and He's taking you home. That's the content of our encouragement for one another. The implication is that there will be some, if not many, among us who are weak and weary. And the call to the community is to bring this particular encouragement to the weak. It's not the job of the community to say, hey, here's how I managed to stand up again. It's the job of the community to say, fear not, the Lord is coming. The Lord is near, and He is a God of salvation, and we're going home. Friends, that is encouragement to a people who know that there are weary and weak among us. We have the very words of our encouragement given to us this morning. I was thinking about this in the world that we live in. We live in a survival of the fittest world. Evolution has has influenced far more than just our science books, all right? 
But we are not a survival of the fittest people. If we were a survival of the fittest people, none of us would make our way into the kingdom. None are truly fit for the journey or the place that we will dwell eternally. So we look to the Lord for strength and we say, it's the weak who will enter the kingdom. It's the the meek, the humbled. It's those who were formerly blind, as we'll see. Those who were formerly deaf and lame and mute who sing for joy in the kingdom of God. How would the Lord have that take place? But that the community of God would have words like, be strong, fear not, the Lord is coming. That would be the means of our entrance. This is the content of the encouragement. It's literally on the lips of the saints and pilgrims on their journey. How often do I find my own heart is anxious, especially in the morning when I rise, especially when I'm alone. And so I open up this book when I rise and I open up this book when I am alone and I say, give me Jesus, scriptures. Give me Jesus. And then I call up my friends, and by God's grace, my friends call me. And they say, Jesus has been given. Jeremiah, Jesus has been given. You you could have all the rest. Jesus. Let's continue together. Looking at verses 5 through 7, we see the next section of the Scriptures, the complete transformation that is wrought by the Lord. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap, the tongue of the mute sing, and waters break forth in the desert. Now what's interesting, this is also picked up in the New Testament. John the Baptist, he's in prison. And he's already borne witness to Jesus that he is the Christ. And in his prison cell, he sends his messengers to Jesus and he says, listen, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? How, how, do we, how do we know that you are the one, even as I myself have declared? And Jesus answered by referring to the prophecies of Isaiah, including chapter 35. And he confirms that he is the Messiah who has come. Listen to Luke 7.22. Again, I would encourage you, write that down in your margin there. Luke 7.22. Jesus answered the messengers of John the Baptist saying this, Go and tell John. What you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and poor have good news preached to them. Now you go do the math. Jesus says, I'm I'm that Isaiah guy. I'm the I'm the anointed one. I am the one that Isaiah 35 speaks of when it says, He will come and save you. The sign that the Lord refers to as a sign of transformation. Now, many commentators see this. And if you look at the New Testament, you see that this is very literally fulfilled in the miracles of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled this to a T and abundantly. But many of the commentators also look at this and say this is not only a physical transformation, but it refers to the work of the Lord spiritually in the people of God to give spiritual eyes to see what we did not previously see. Because you see, Jesus is walking around, he's preaching, and he says he, they, they see 
but they do not understand. They hear, but they don't hear. Their eyes hear, but they don't understand. Well, what happens when the Lord God transforms a people and calls them to himself, that he becomes the light and he casts out the darkness, is they are given spiritual eyes and they are given spiritual ears. Praise God that we are no longer blind and deaf to the things of God, that we can see him, we can behold him, that during the journey we can continue to suffer in our bodies, but the Lord has given us a spiritual capacity to see him and so finish the race. Now, verse 5 begins with another word that we shouldn't pass over. It says, then. Then. So that means that whatever is coming before it, where it says, he will come and save you. If this is true, then the remainder is true. It's as the redeemed behold their God who has come to save them that their eyes are open, their ears are unstopped, their legs leap, and their tongues begin to sing. Our hope is not transformation, you see. That's, that's then that happens. Our hope is that the Lord would come, that He is fulfilling the advent, that He has come and He will come. Our hope is that He comes and that He saves. Our journey's end is not that we would see and that we would hear. Our journey's end is that we would know the Lord. He will surely heal our body and our soul. It is true, but we'll know it when we see Him. Again, we have the transformation of the land itself. The sand and parched ground becomes water in the passage. The wild animals are gone and make way for habitation. You can actually compare that to just the chapter before in Isaiah, in chapter 34, verse 13, speaking of the cities of the enemies of God, it says this. This is what the Lord does to the people who are not His, who are not called according to His name and His purpose. The thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. (laughs) That's what happens in the journey of those who are not his. The strongholds of the wicked are overrun by wild animals and birds. But the Lord is preparing a place for his people to dwell in peace and safety. He's reversing the curse. We will enter what is often called that beautiful garden city of God. So, strengthen your hands. Make firm your knees and be encouraged in heart. The Lord has come and He is our salvation. When the journey is complete, so too will be our transformation. It was, it has begun and there will be a completion, which is exactly where the next few verses go. Look at verses eight. Get Isaiah eight, verses eight through chapter 35, eight through 10. I'll read it for you. A highway shall be there. Literally, that literally means a highway. It's not an interstate, you know. They just sort of carve out through the land. It's a highway. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a way or a road that's built up above the surrounding environment so that the surrounding environment cannot encroach. It's a, literally a highway. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. 
It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This is where all of the chapter has been moving. It's a glorious end of the pilgrim's journey. The pilgrim's way is along the way of holiness. One of the commentators says this, The Lord never reduces the standards to match the weakness of His people. He never reduces His holy standards. That's why it's the way of holiness. He never reduces His standards to match the weakness of His people. Rather, He transforms or He raises His people to the height of His standards. That's the purpose of the transforming work. That's the purpose of the strengthening of the weak work. That He is literally raising us up to be set on the highway, a raised path whose end is the entrance into the promised rest, the journey's end. Who in the world are going to walk on the holy highway? Who's going to make it there? It says, it says that in the passage, the unclean shall not pass over it. Okay, I just didn't make it on the entrance ramp. How about you? Who's, who in the world is going to make it onto that highway? The, the highway where no unclean, only the way of holiness. And the only answer that this passage gives us, interestingly, is that the redeemed shall walk there. That's who. The redeemed. It doesn't say those who have managed to measure up to that way, who have, who have successfully made it to the journey's end, get to step up on the highway, and it's more like a red carpet unfurled for our entrance. It's the redeemed. It's the ones that the Lord has worked on to redeem and rescue. The one that the Lord has set His eye upon, just like Israel in Egypt. They were nothing except He called them. And then he, by the strength of his outstretched hand, he redeemed them, brought them through the highway and placed them in his land. Is there anyone who is clean? No. But there is a people who have been redeemed and so have been washed. Walk along the way of holiness and enter the land. It's the ransomed of the Lord who return. Friends, what we're talking about there is that way of holiness is the way of the gospel. The Lord has removed every single threat that impedes the progress of the pilgrim through the wilderness journey to their eternal home. He's removed their human frailties. He's removed the harsh landscape and the wild beasts. And now he removes the greatest barrier of all. He removes their uncleanness that we can make our way all the way to the, to the gates of the entrance to the promised land and find ourselves excluded if it were not for the fact that He removes our uncleanness. This is why none of Israel's returnings to the land recorded for us in the Old Testament, they were never sufficient. They were never entrance truly into the promised land of rest. Why? Every time they entered, they themselves were still unclean. They were still not yet atoned for. The, the completeness of salvation had not been performed. They were never truly a return to peace and rest, for whenever the 
Wherever the people went, they brought their uncleanness with them. They brought their own sin. It's only with the coming of the Lord and the person and work of Jesus to which the, those same people looked and longed and the prophets prophesied that he would come and there would be a wiping away and a transformation of the heart and there would be a placement on a way of holiness to an eternal rest. It's only when that Jesus came to live the only righteous life, the only one who was truly worthy to walk on the way of holiness. When the one who came and died in the place of sinners, that we might be placed there, washed clean as well. It's only when the person and work of Jesus comes to rise and to secure life for all who place their faith in him. It's only with the person and work of Jesus that sin is dealt with and uncleanness is wiped away. Jesus, it turns out, is the highway. He is the way of holiness. I can't say how encouraged I am by the time I get to verse 8. You see, I work my way through this passage, and I don't know where to stop. I find my heart wavering. My, my soul is downcast within me right here in the middle of these incredibly encouraging passages of Scripture because I'm like, is my, is my problem... The things that happen to me out there is my problem that I don't have proper provision in this life, that I'm not, that I don't have enough faith in the Lord to provide help in a time of trouble, or is my problem just that I'm a sinner and I'm not clean? And just throughout the whole of the text, he's like, I'm dealing with that. I've dealt with that. I've provided for that. I have promised for that. In fact, I'm, I'm with you. I've come and I am your salvation right in the middle of the journey. He's dealing with everything that's busted. And then he says this. Every time I'm weary, he says this. Even if they are fools. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. He picks up a people who are not clean. He makes them clean. He places on the, the way of holiness and he says, I know who you are. <laughs> I know how wandering you are. But he is a good shepherd with a prophetic encouragement. He's the one who sets guardrails on the highway and he goes after every lost sheep. He says, even if they are fools and would walk off into the wilderness and the parched land on their own, I will keep them on my way of holiness all the way to the end. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. Even if, like, I don't think we need the conditional there. God has decided that there will be a redeemed people. He's called them by name. Because he has decided there will be a redeemed people, friends, there will be a redeemed people. I find no greater encouragement, no matter how downcast is my soul, no matter how difficult my circumstances, or how low is my, my view of myself, that I'm not weak, meek, I'm wallowing. I look to Philippians 1.6, and it resounds with the truth of Isaiah 35. In Philippians 1.6, it says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to keep you on the way, and it will be brought to its completion. The ransomed of the Lord, verse 10 says, shall return. 
This is what he said will be, and so it will be. Here's the deal. In the calendar year, the end of the year is often a time of reflection, and perhaps you've already entered into that. And and sometimes I ask the question along with you, have I made any progress this year? Did I obtain any of last year's New Year's resolutions? And you're like, I don't even remember what they were. The only thing I remember about them is they didn't make their way through January, right? It's a time of reflection often. But what if instead of considering this year a a time of, that's really the end of a year and a time to reflect on our failure as pilgrims in this journey, what if instead we remembered Advent? What if we remembered coming What if we remembered that this is actually still the beginning of the story? What if we saw the season of Advent, December, the last month of our year, as a beginning in which we set out again on the journey of faith? That we remember the beginning of the journey of faith is to repent and believe and have faith in the promises of the Lord God, particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His gospel. What if we again remembered the hope of his provision? What if we again looked around and said, does anyone need encouragement like the words that we have been given in Isaiah? What if we saw this as a beginning, ceased to see ourselves and our resolutions as the means of our transformation? We already saw they didn't work last year. They won't work next year either. And instead fixed our eyes on the Redeemer on the surety of the hope that the way of holiness is real. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it works. And long, Lord, will you come? Will you cease this wilderness journey? Will you come and bring us to your rest? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for your promise. Surely, the the people of God waited 400 years after the giving of this prophecy. And they they waited, looking for the coming of the Messiah, who would establish the way. They believed there was a way, but they, they didn't even see the gospel yet. They didn't even see the person and work of Jesus, and they waited in faith. And people like Mary and others who waited in faith saw you and said, that's it. That's the way of holiness. That's the God who has come. That is our salvation. Lord, I pray that we who have the privilege of looking back on that gospel fulfillment, I pray that we would look in the same place and we would receive the same encouragement that no matter how long we wait for your second advent, for your coming again, our hands would be strengthened, our Knees would no longer be feeble. We would stand up and continue on, not because we have resolved as such, but because we have seen you and you work in us. So Lord, if there's any resolution that we would make today, we resolve to see you. To seek you and all of the promise that comes for those who seek you who will find you. Nothing less. Thank you, Lord. We we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you for your promise this morning. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.